Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground. Alternative activists empowerment talk radio. Speaking truth to us and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro. That's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? I am a revolutionary. It's about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent fairly, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that talk, matters. matters. Transforming, Transforming truth, truth to power, power, power. One, broadcast one broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. The top 1% of the top 1% grabs all the wealth. 85 people have as much money as 3.5 billion other people. That's the old news. We're here to reclaim the house as the people's house. Now the story is about power about the decline of democracy. I think in many ways it's the American nightmare. About the decline of the nation-state. The old idea of the nation-state is crumbling around us. The story is about a small group of super-wealthy ruling the United States. Is this the rise of the oligarchs here and throughout the world? Oligarchs? I mean, it's just... And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. What globalization does is it allows people in places like India and China and Vietnam to, to make goods that people in America can buy. But these are not mutually exclusive. I mean, it did, it did create oligarchs throughout the world. It's more important that we lift people out of poverty 
then whatever, the fact that the Waltons have $150 million is a necessary byproduct because they are the ones who created the mechanism for listing. It's a necessary byproduct? Absolutely. The government, government agencies can't create a Walmart. You have to have a private corporation that has the initiative to do these things, that has the incentive economically. I mean, as much as globalization is important to the Walmart story, the hierarchies within the United States um, have contributed um, incredibly to the business model as well by making it so um, easy for Walmart to exploit um, cheap labor at home. I, I don't think that Walmart could have been as successful without the phenomenal exploitation of its workers at home in the U.S. So, and some of them are collecting food stamps, I read? Of course. Transforming Truth to Power, one broadcast at a time. And now, Janice Graham. Thank you for being with us tonight with Dr. Tommy J. Curry. Stay tuned. Transforming Truth to Power, one broadcast at a time. And now, Janice Graham. Research 
of Critical Race Theory and Africana Philosophy, Curry looks at the work of Derrick Bell uh, and his theory of racial realism as an antidote to the proliferating discourses of racial idealism that continue to uncritically embrace liberalism throughout the appropriation of European thinkers as the basis of racial reconciliation in the United States. And we are just so very pleased to be able to have him as an Our Common Ground guest uh, and an Our Common Ground voice. He has been with us many times to help us unravel all of these things. Tonight at Our Common Ground, we're going to be talking about ethnic cleansing on the Gaza, for we believe and can look at the operation going on in, uh, from Israel, the attacks against the Palestinian people, and we can call it none other than ethnic cleansing on the road to genocide. We're also going to be looking at the rejection of Marissa Alexander's Stand Your Ground hearing, the murder of Eric Garner by the New York City Police, and a basic disdain in this country of poor people we have torn away in this country through both politics and white supremacy any fabric of decency and humanity, and we need to talk about those things. But before we begin, I want to bring some things to you. It is uh, with a great deal of sadness that we announce the transition to ancestor of Eddie Ellis. He passed at the age of 72. Uh, so much needs to be said, of course, about how sad we are. And if you did not know him, he is one of our colleagues of many, many years broadcasting out of WBAI in New York. Uh, he was born in 1941 and was the found, founder of the nonprofit Center for New NU, that's NU, Leadership on Urban Solutions, and was perhaps most famous for his distinctive throaty voice every Saturday mid-afternoon on the radio show On the Count. The New York uh, community will certainly miss him and his popular weekly show on WBAI that prided itself on being the city's only show about for and produced by people who were formerly incarcerated. Eddie and I have had a relationship for many, many years, and he has uh, not been on the air since 2013. He's a per fiercely private person in his personal affairs. He earned his undergraduate degree and postgraduate degree as a theologian. He was considered by many professionals and advocates working in and out of New York criminal justice system as a rare, credible, and legitimate appraiser of its dollar-for-dollar dollar value. In 2011, uh, Harvard University's Charles Hamilton Houston Institute for Race and Justice joined with Our Common Ground to recognize Ellis' lifelong commitment to reforming 
Americans punishing criminal justice system. His passing comes in the midst of efforts by his colleagues to edify his non-traditional approach to criminal uh, punishment systems in the form of the Eddie Ellis Academy for Human Rights. Also on the history front, we want to inform you that on today, President Truman issued Executive Order Number 9981 directing equality of treatment and opportunity in the armed forces. Um, and also on this date, in 1847, President Joseph Jenkins Roberts, a native of Virginia, declared Liberia an independent republic. And some years later, 40 years later, well, actually, I have to do the math over. Fifty years later, on July 26, uh, it was declared Independence Day for the Republic of Liberia. And I want a special shout-out to my friend and our common ground voice, Carmen Del Rosario, who is in Liberia tonight celebrating Independence Day. Uh, another history note uh, take note of this, Unita Blackwell. She was a former sharecropper who later became a civil rights activist in the South. She was the first black woman to be elected mayor in the state of Mississippi despite an eighth grade education and while facing extreme racism and acts of white supremacy. She fought violently for the voting and civil rights of black people in her state, and she was born in March 18, 1933, to sharecropper parents, Verda May and Willie Brown in Lula, Mississippi. Uh, she began her education in West Helena, Arkansas, as schools in Mississippi didn't provide many options for black students, and she left at age 14, dropping out to support her family. That is Unita Blackwell, a civil rights pioneer in the state of Mississippi. How are you? And we hope that you are well. We are going to invite you to invite your friends to join us here at Blog Talk Radio dot com backslash OCG. Our number is three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two. It is open mic night at our common ground. Even though we have a guest who is partly going to be helping us moderate and critically analyze some of these issues. Doctor Tommy J. Curry, how are you my brother and thank you again for joining us. No problem. Well, sister, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. How's that stuff in tennis going? Was the, <laughs> going was the well. French enough for you? Not yet. Waiting for the open. <laughs> Got to see what they I do really up in New York. I really enjoy your commentary uh, on um, on on tennis because uh, it's very rare to have technicians uh, do sideline calls. On tennis, mm-hmm. and I really do enjoy it. Um, I don't know how you're feeling about uh, what has been happening across the globe uh, this week uh, with 
especially with the attacks by the Israeli military mm-hmm. um, on uh, the people of Gaza and the Palestinian people of Gaza. What's your take? Um, let's start off with what your take is of what's happening there and why the United States government has not been aggressive in its defense of its own principles of uh, humanity. I mean, I think we've seen over the last few years uh, the ability of the United States government to not really respect any principles of humanity. I mean, with the increase of surveillance, you know, through the prison program, with the use of drones uh, against, you know, their own citizens specifically, uh, black brothers, uh, you know, been chased by police and the government, you know, the Snowden issue. I mean, I think the government has really shown a readiness to uh, violate humanity wherever it sees it appropriate for profit or its own interest. Uh, I think the situation with Palestine and Israel, however, uh, requires a little more thought than we've been putting forth on uh, by many black public intellectuals. Uh, I think one of the major problems is that we, yet again, fail to understand how American soft power uh, is winning of the Cold War, uh, its use of uh, militarism, in, uh, militarism in strategic areas in the Middle East really do perpetuate this kind of view of uh, empire. And its alliance and partnership with Israel uh, ever since the Cold War has been a real issue in terms of how it's tried to control that region, specifically for issues of oil and spheres of influence. So I think that the United States, in violating the humanity of the people of the Palestinians, in uh, and, and ignoring the ongoing genocide, or what I would call genocide, or hopefully be classified as that very soonly by the by very soon by the UN, uh, goes along with its economic interest. And I don't think that we see an Obama administration which is willing to overthrow kind of the solidification of U.S.-Israel relationships and finance uh, financial buffering uh, since the Bush administration. So I think that it becomes very legitimate in their eyes to go on this kind of, uh, Israel has a right of self-defense because of, you know, rockets launched Bahamas, uh, and that somehow becomes a justification for us to ignore the, the, the hundreds and thousands of civilians that are losing their lives um, by military strikes from Israel, right? Um, I mean, it's disappointing, but I think we see this kind of racial and dehumanizing logics at play throughout the United States uh, interaction with people not only in the Middle East, but with black Americans here at home. Mhm, mhm. You know, there are just so many misconceptions about the Israel-Palestine conflict, and one of them, uh, in my mind, the largest one is that Israeli attacks are a response to rockets from mm-hmm. Hamas. Right. If anything, the opposite is more plausible. That mm-hmm. Hamas is responding essentially. Uh, to Israeli prov- uh, provocations right. and attacks by launching um, rockets. But we have a media uh, in this country uh, and in most European uh, countries that are perpetuating the idea that Hamas essentially is engaged uh, in some kind of war Mm-hmm. Our, our, our military conflict, military aggression with uh, Israel, and that's simply not true. Uh, well, I, you well, know, I, I went back and I looked because this is this is this week. I mean, this has really not necessarily thrown me, 
mm-hmm. but it really has made me I, I have been stunned by this kind of inhumanity when you look at um, how Israel has come out of essentially um, they have they came out of a, uh, um, a, a ceasefire in 2012 mm-hmm. with this harsh blockade on Gaza and and Gaza essentially where Palestine where where all of these Palestinian people live and try to live out their lives is a prison. Right. They can't get yeah, out and they can't get in with without Israel permission. Mm-hmm. So these people are uh, Israel is simply just lobbying um uh these these missiles and rockets into people's homes and they have nowhere to flee and and then on on Wednesday uh the UN refugee Palestinian refugee camp was bombed. Mm-hmm. So you look at this and you see children, I mean babies. I saw one one a picture of one child out of the hundreds who have been killed over the last 2 weeks. And it was just horrific. I agree with and, you. And, and I think that most of our listeners do understand that this is their tax dollar at work. Right. The, the, the other misconception, and I, I do want to play a, a tape which summarizes some of this, but I, th- I thought it was very important, uh, you know, that we begin to... Uh, understand that some of the fundamentals of this, because then we begin to understand our government's own positioning around what is humane, what is genocide, and what is ethnic cleansing, Mm -hmm. because at some point that those principles are going to be at our front door. the other is the, the misconception that Israel wants to stop the violence, but Hamas right, rejects offers for peace. That right. is so far from the truth. Well, we know how people we know how people who seek to defend themselves are usually painted in history. Um, I think again, I think that one of the major problems is that in the West, a lot of our intellectuals have taken this up as a talking point about violence. So we see a lot of black public intellectuals coming out saying, oh, we have to support the, support the people of Gaza. But they're not giving us any kind of actual analysis about how, in, in many ways, the United States triumphing over the Soviet Union, it's building up a soft power, it's imperialism, the idea that we're complaining about you know, our standard of living, like we're complaining about gas taxes, our grass prices, etc. But these are conditioned by the United States' access to oil in that region. I don't think we're making those kind of links. So I think we see the political mm-hmm. issue like, oh, people are dying, and now this becomes a talking point the same way it was a few months ago about, you know, bring back our girls. But we don't have any kind of sustained engagement with how the quality of life we're trying to enjoy and what we allegedly fight for civil rights in the United States is, is part and parcel of the problem that allows the United States to fund Israel and do this type of violence because of economic partnership. 
So when we see these bodies, when we see these, these you know, women and children, when we see these young men and boys who are practically ignored by Western media because we frame all the Palestinian men and boys as if they're terrorists and the women and girls are simply victims, we take in these biases and we frame this conflict from our own Western lens. And the problem with that is that because we're not very good students of history, we don't see Israel and Palestine being the simple replaying or reiteration of the same type of racial logics and domination that colonized black people and indigenous people in the United States. This is practically settler colonialism, and we've seen this play out for the last 40 years. We've seen U.N. declaration after U.N. declaration calling for peace, calling for uh, Israel to cease violence and attacks uh, you know, on Gaza, and we've seen the United States and Israel time after time vote, against, uh, vote as a block against such things. I mean, this is one of the things that happened before 9-11 back in 2000-2001. Uh, Right? We saw them have, have an international conference on racism. The United States and Israel both pulled out because you had an international community talking about the two aspects of racism against black Americans and against Palestinians as being linked. They pull out, 9-11 happens, and now we have this whole iteration of why we can threat construct everyone from the Middle East as being terrorists. And we see an increase of surveillance and homeland security in the United States. I find those things coincidental, but these things have a history that have been built up for the last decade or so that have allowed us to become very, very comfortable with this taking away of freedom and this kind of genocide on black and brown bodies. And we don't say anything about it because nobody in the black intellectual community holds anything to any standard of research. They want talking points and they don't want a systemic analysis about why we have a historiography that allows racial logics of genocide to go unnoticed as long as we're talking about people getting jobs or people getting likes on social blogs. It's not, a, it's not an adequate way to understand the relationship that we have to these genocidal practices, especially when we live in one of the biggest empires in the world. Well, you know, and you're absolutely right, and another one of the uh, dots, uh, connecting the dots, is that we, we, we have to begin to understand that the kind of support provided by the United States, both military and, um, and funding support of other exceptional kinds of, uh, of ways, to the to the to the state of Israel if you connect those dots we become desensitized to this kind of violence against civilians and mm-hmm. people who um I can't I can't remember the name of and it'll come to me later on but I can't remember the name of the propaganda machine in Israel which has perpetuated the idea that this really is war when, in fact, this is an attack and is genocide and ethnic cleansing and land grabbing. This is the worst kind of uh, eminent domain mm-hmm. that we will see. But if we become desensitized to it, then we're going to have a problem because the killing of young black boys in the streets of America will become something that happens that civilians are simply Absolutely. a casualty of conflict. Absolutely. You know, and this carelessness or disregard for civilian li- lives with the military already in our streets, and that's your mm-hmm. local police department folks, that we will become desensitized to it and begin to accept that this is how things happen. You know, and, oh, and, and then, Tommy, I get so in, enraged because the public has been kept uninformed and ignorant about the crimes that are being carried out in their name. Oh, yeah, because we, we, we read blogs, not books, 
right? I mean, you know, I'm I'm I, I'm gonna I'm gonna be real with you. I mean, we our source of information for even the alleged black intelligentsia in this country is social media. This is why we see the proliferation of black Twitter. This is why we see the celebration of black public intellectuals on Salon or MSNBC, whatever the case may be. And all that is censored types of media. It is not a historical understanding. Now that doesn't mean it shouldn't exist, but it means that it shouldn't be solely believed. And when we have mm-hmm, these kind of mm-hmm. conversations, I mean, think, think, I mean, think about this. When we talk about the desensitization of Americans to American militarism, it doesn't just go onto our streets. I mean, think about the types of imperial intervention that you had many black intellectuals calling for, asking Obama to take the military in Nigeria to save the 200, the 200 young girls. Now, now think about that. So we, uh, as Westerners, as black Americans, we create a talking point, and we say that we should use America's military force to enforce that. And I'm not saying that that's unfortunate, but think about the precedent that sets in terms of U.S. intervening and breaking other nations' sovereignty. Right? Does that mean that we intervene anytime something we don't like happens? Does it mean that we intervene against freedom of speech? Does it mean that we intervene on the basis of resource allocation? That, that's a very slippery slope to go into. And especially the fact that since we seem to not care about how these societies actually function, for example, when they killed 60 boys, Right, but they didn't talk about it. they talk about kidnapping two hundred kidnapped girls. What are we saying our as our concerns? Are we using our Western lens to, to interpret and dictate what these African countries and these Middle Eastern countries have to go through because we have the power of sitting at the top of the empire? This is utterly ridiculous. And we don't even they don't there's not a conversation about it. We simply say, Oh well that's a concern, but here my, my, my talking point's more important. Oh that's a concern, but isn't this more important? That's all a function of Western power. Right, and black Americans have been, as you say, have been desensitized. They have become ignorant of the position that they play in maintaining these kind of global economies and militaristic positions across the world. We we mm-hmm. we advocate mm-hmm. it was in our favor, and then we condemn it when it doesn't work out for us. You can't live in an empire in a military state or a police state and say, "Well, I, so I love them sometimes when they do what I want, but I hate them when I'm the victim." And that's what we mm-hmm. see emerging—a mm-hmm. a repetitive pattern where we have black intellectuals who are saying, "Well, look." I'll criticize the system as long as it gets me to play, but I'm not going to start criticizing white supremacy. I'm not going to criticize Obama. I'll criticize him on my brother's keeper, but I'm not going to criticize him on drones. I'm not going to criticize him on imperialism. I'm not going to criticize him on his continued alliance with Israel. You know, it, this is, it, I mean, it's the stuff, it's, it's, oh, it's just ridiculous. It's, you know, it's anti-intellectual and it's dishonest, right? Mm-hmm. And we celebrate the dishonesty because it fits what our already pre-formulated dogmas, and it's ridiculous. Well, the, the, here here is one other part of that picture, and you've certainly um, laid it out in the sense that we have tolerated over the last 15 years the increased military equipment used by local police departments. Oh, absolutely. As long as Americans don't get this story about why uh, Benjamin Netanyahu continues to send rocket attacks and uses Hamas as a theory about why he's doing that and admits that he carried out 160 airstrikes when they moved the tanks into the Gaza and began, as they did in 2008 and 2012, begin to simply roll over people's neighborhoods and where people live, then we, when we begin to see these huge police cars 
this huge military capability of local police um, uh, law enforcement um, operations, when police begin to throw grenades into people's windows Mm -hmm. without warrant or to carry out a warrant, we won't be surprised when the tanks start coming down the middle of our streets. Oh no. And this is this is what this is what Chris Dorner warned us of, right? I mean this is this was you know, he was called a lunatic, et cetera, but his his major response to uh the LAPD and the United States government's use of surveillance like drones was precisely this, that we will accept a police state. That we will accept the corruption. This is exactly mm-hmm. what the Panthers mm-hmm. told us. This is what Huey P. Newton told us in his dissertation on the war against the Panthers. This is what Angela Davis told us uh, back when she was actually writing about political economics and you know was less concerned about feminism. Uh, that we have a rise of fascism, right? This this is what people predicted as the basis of increased government technology and modernization. But today mm-hmm. we live comfortably in it because they we we simply retreat into our class status. If we're middle-class black people with degrees, we uh, sit back and study poor black people that get killed. We get to judge and interpret their lives, right? I mean, I think this is exactly what happened with uh, the young brother, well, not the young brother, but Garner, Eric Garner's situation. Uh, we have a bunch mm-hmm. of black intellectuals that decided that his life uh, was worth mourning for uh, but not worth marching for, right? This is that Kimberly Foster piece, the For Harriet piece, right? This is what I, we I was really, I, I don't know how many uh, of our listeners read that piece. I started reading it, and I wasn't getting it, and I moved on. Mm-hmm. Um, but explain to us, and then we're going to talk about Garner. For those of you who are just joining us, you're listening to Our Common Ground, and our guest for Open Mic tonight is uh, Dr. Tommy J. Curry. Our number is 347 9852 if you're willing to jump into this conversation with a new and enriched perspective uh, about what's happening uh, between uh, around the attacks of the nation of Israel against the Palestinian people on the uh, on the Gaza and they're going to be moving uh, pretty quickly out of the ceasefire. That's the other thing, Tommy. How do you yeah. have a ceasefire? You take a break from genocide. Yeah, was it a twelve-hour? I think it was, was it a twelve-hour break or break for twenty-four-hour break? It was a twelve-hour. Right. It was a twelve-hour break. I mean, what you say? Okay, we're not gonna um, we're not gonna kill uh, civilians, women, and children, um, and for twelve hours, and then we'll get back to it. Right. How ridiculous does that sound? So well, our number, does, if you want to you join know. us uh, in this discussion, is 347-838-9852, and I hope that you do. Let's move uh, Dr. Curry into, I have a clip of the approach, attempted arrest, and the murder of Eric Garner. For those of you who do not know, Eric Garner was a 43-year-old father of six, and he argued with plainclothes New York Police Department officers on Staten Island when they murdered him, when the officers attempted to handcuff him. Garner asked him them not to touch him, and one of the officers put him in a chokehold. Several other officers piled on him, 
slamming him into the sidewalk, and he began to complain that he couldn't breathe. Now Eric Garner is dead. Now, police allege they saw Garner selling illegal untaxed cigarettes, but witnesses at the scene say he was stopped because he broke up a fight. Either way, the psychological distress the encounter caused him is evident before the cops even lay their hands on him. And he said to them, and I quote from the now deceased Eric Garner, Every time you see me, you try to mess with me. He says to the cops at one point, this stops today. One of the things that I want to note is in the audio that was recorded, he continued as he had this very calm conversation, but it was standing his ground. Mm -hmm. He continued to call them officers. He never cursed at them. He never got angry and aggressive. They were choking him, and he kept saying, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Get off of me. Get off of me. And he said, "He, I can't breathe 11 times, and he died right there. The only thing that we do know is that the New York Police Department's Internal Affairs Division is looking into the incident. One uh, internal affair de- de- detective uh, was quoted in the New York Daily News as saying that he had spoken with Garner's wife, telling her his office was investigating, quote, because there is wrongdoing. And, and earlier on yesterday, The mayor of New York tweeted his condolences, and this is the event. Some of you may find this terrifying, and some of you might find it disturbing, that this is what is happening on the streets of America. Business. If we break our stocks, you can put it up on me? The people that fight you can walk away? Are you serious? I didn't sell anything. I did nothing. We sit here the whole time, running our business. Who got to do what? Who got to sell cigarettes to? To who? You your heart away for what? Every time you see me, you I'm proud of it. It's This guy right here is forcibly trying to lock somebody up for breaking up a fight. Everybody standing here, they told me I didn't do nothing. I did not sell nothing. Because every time you see me, you want to harass me, you want to stop me, so I sell cigarettes. I'm minding my business, officer. I'm minding my business. Please just leave me alone. I told you the last time, please leave me alone. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Don't touch me. Came over. Don't touch me. Damn. Where's your hand, buddy? Where's your hand, buddy? Where's your hand, buddy? Where's your hand, buddy? 
Once again, police beating up on people. Back up right here. Back up and get on that step. Okay, back up. All he did was break up a fight. And that is what happened on the streets of Staten Island on last Saturday. Dr. Curry? Yes, ma'am. What do we do? Yeah, look, you know, as you know from my work, you know, you see my posts and, you know, things are right. Um, You know, I think that this is just another example uh, of of the necrophobia, the genocidal tendency that white people have or the state, American state has uh, towards black people. And I want to highlight specifically black men. Uh, I think that one of the greatest problems in the university is that there is a moratorium on the study of black men, meaning that it is very difficult to get an article, a book, or any audience to talk about the specific death and dying of black men in this country. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm too cynical to believe that that's simply uh, coincidental. Uh, I think that when you look at the deaths of things of people like um, Trayvon Martin, I think when you look at what happened to Eric Garner, you see a very real pattern here of, of black men being killed with, 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 without prejudice, with, with simply absolute aversion to their lives. And while we know that sisters are killed uh, and are victimized by some of these same institutions, the police, uh, I think it's important for us to understand that it's in this pattern that's been solidified of anti-black violence against black men, this incarceration, this murder, this castration, that we see the state practicing those same types of things on our women and our children. Uh, I think it's a mistake for us not to try to study this. I think it's a mistake uh, for us to do as Kimberly Foster suggested we do, which is to mourn but don't march, right? Um, how many black people have to die? And I use black people there intentionally. Like, How many black people have to die uh, before these academics wake up and put aside their little petty politics, right? I mean, her piece, uh, which is why will I, I will not march uh, for the death of Eric Garner or why I will not march for Eric Garner, uh, was just laden with, with kind of logical gaps. I mean, at one point she suggested that uh, because black women uh, were subject to catcalls, right, uh, and that the, United, the president of the United States did not include black women into my brother's keeper, that these are examples of the kind of political issues that black men don't stand uh, behind women on. And it couldn't be a disagreement, right? It couldn't be a serious disagreement where black men are saying, where other black scholars were. In fact, other black women have said, look, you're misrepresenting the issue. Black boys are farther behind than any group, and they need help. Brown boys are behind black boys need help. It can't be an actual disagreement. It has to become something where it's a moral issue. So if many of these black feminist academics don't get what they want, then they get to say that, well, a black man dying is simply not worth our time, our political energies, right? And I I find this to be a very dangerous uh, train of thought that's rising up in the academy. Because what it means is that black men who are severely underrepresented in the university, black boys are severely underrepresented in terms of high school and college, these people don't have the opportunities to speak for themselves. So what it means is that we have a group of people, by and large black feminists and other black male progressive writers, who are not pointing out their particular vulnerability, which is why things like Eric Garner happens. And, this, and see, the thing is, this happens, we, we see this year after year, right? 
We saw Trayvon. We saw, you know, Jordan Davis. Like, I mean, how many times, right, even when we see Renisha McBride, you know, I try to tell people, I was like, look at the difference of the rationalizations. McBride's trial just started, and the guy's like, I didn't know the gun was loaded. It was an accident, right? A pillow upon the sympathy that I didn't mean to do it. But these people have killed an innocent man on tape. Like, all these assassinations of black men happen on tape and get posted on YouTube. And they still defend themselves as, well, look, he was a danger. He was a threat. He was reaching for a gun. He was on the concrete, and that's a weapon. The, the, the rationalizations behind why you kill black men in the society are completely different. It doesn't excuse why it happens to black women or children, but I'm saying that the rationalizations we have in this white supremacist society are fundamentally different. And we don't want to talk about that qualitative difference in the rationalizations. And because we're silent, when something like Eric Garner happens, we get to debate it. Like, this brother is dead. His wife and his daughter are mourning him. He is an innocent victim. And yet we're supposed to believe because of somebody's political intuition, because he was a black male, he's somehow not innocent. And this is what's the most dangerous aspect of it. This is when we're talking about being desensitized. This is, what, this is what we talk about. It means that even though violence happens to black men in this society, we ultimately believe that they're somehow culpable in it. This is the same era of thought that Ida B. Wells recognized. She was like, before Thomas Moss died, I thought that black men deserved to be lynched because they were actually raping women. But then my friend got killed just because he owned the store, and I realized that that was a mistake, that they're doing it to make sure that the black man specifically could not champion and live up to the ideas of manhood for the race. In other words, he could not sustain and create economic self-sufficiency for black people. And today we're repeating the same kind of fallacies that Ida B. Wells believed, and we act like there's nothing wrong with it. The police are going to kill black men. They see them and construct their bodies as threats. It's a negrophobia where they want to create in black men the justification for their violence, that their bodies somehow call it forth. Well, one of the things, um, aside from how we write and think about these things, you know, we we tend to have – a mindset that 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 immediately goes to what could he have done differently it's, exactly it's very exactly. much it's very much like the professor at the University of Arizona mm. or Arizona State University Dr. Orr yeah Dr. Who, Orr right uh many um African Americans said you know she should have cooperated she could have done something different that you expect this and here is a man who's saying I'm tired of being messed with exactly exactly and we have politicians like the mayor uh, who call for an investigation when in, in in the same way that you look at the 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 incidents that have happened over and over and over against this country with law enforcement, and you've got the video, and they're still mm-hmm. saying we've got to have an investigation. What the hell is there to investigate when you're watching a police officer chokehold an obese man mm-hmm. who obviously had no ability to defend himself exactly. or, to, or, or, to, or, or, or any um, positive way in which to, um, to um, resist. And right. he wasn't resisting. No, he's we've got a, a, I've seen the video. Yep, we've got, we've got a caller, 773, you're on the air with Dr. Tommy J. Curry. Thank you for your call. I respect you. Well, good evening, Janice, and good evening to Dr. Curry. Um, it's the Alpha. Alpha, great show last night. Great reunion. 
Well, thank you. I I really enjoyed all of the callers that um, brought us this far, who's been with us this long. Um, on all of on both the, of the topics, the topics of Gaza and the genocide going on by the Israelis. You know, when you start talking about that type of situation, what have we heard from the the people who have who who are saying we've heard this shouldn't be happening and then they go away or uh-huh. they they're heavy handed and then they go away. This has to fall not directly upon the United States for their uh, support, uh, un, unwavering support for what Israel does. This also has to fall on the press. You see, when the Palestinian young lady spoke out, she's been summarily fired from MSNBC. Right. The ratio of Palestinians speaking on this issue, they're outnumbered, you know, 10 to 1, 20 to 1. And the same goes for the Eric Garner scenario. This, is, this wasn't just a an arrest gone wrong. This was murder. Absolutely. The, the MMA classes that are being taught by the NYPD, one of the best techniques in these classes is the what they call the rear naked choke. And that's what they had him. They didn't just have him in a chokehold. This was a rear-necked choke. The only thing he didn't have is what they call the hook thing. And the hooks are simply both legs wrapped around him to a point where he could not get, a, get away if he wanted to. But the, the initial guy that grabbed him around his neck jumped him from behind. Choke holes are illegal. So you commit an illegal act and someone dies. And it... it, it just that act of choking this man. But the cavalier, nonchalant attitude after he was down and motionless, not just by the police, but by the EMTs who arrived on the scene. And no one, I mean, has, I saw someone check his pulse, check him up the neck, and no one sprung into action. He's not breathing. He's, it, this is simply ridiculous not just from the standpoint of the law being broken. There has to be someone willing to step out and call this what it is. This was nothing well, but Well, Alpha, a... who would be that person? Well, that's my whole point. There would not be that person simply because the media will not allow that narrative to come across. They're not going to allow that media. That, that... Alpha, did we lose you? No. I'm trying to something's coming and going. Right. I think I think you're absolutely right, sir. I think I think you're absolutely right. But this is again, this is what I'm talking about, not only in terms of what we produce for the university, but the people who get the airways. We're not having real conversations. We're not having every time this happens. This woman Foster got big time 
uh, a visibility on why she wouldn't march for Eric Garner. Exactly. exactly. And that's what I'm saying because, and this is what I mean, right? We, what we do, and th- and this is a real problem with how we write about race in this country. What we do is we create sensational anti-black claims, right, that are based on pre-configured values. So in other words, she's, she identifies as a black feminist. She comes out with the most ridiculous anti-black and, and racist sentiment against black men. She knows she can't be attacked for racism because she's black, and she gets the ears of practically every white liberal, white feminist, and even some other you know, more radical black feminist purely on the basis of her making an unpopular opinion. And th- so it becomes so, in other words, they get, to, they get the platform because of the blog situation, the way that social media works, to miseducate black people and then become famous on that miseducation. Because since it's their blog and their opinion, no one can actually challenge them. It's not peer-reviewed, so it's not like top specials are looking at it. It's just what they think. And that, propose, that gives them the kind of you know, momentum to make names for themselves and get that thought out there. All the other time, that means that anybody who disagrees with her now becomes you know, censored or becomes bashed because now they get to say, well, look, this is the progressive standard. Black men are dying, yeah, but you're not looking at black women. And any serious conversation about how this man was put in a legal chokehold, how black men are disproportionately affected by police brutality and death, incarceration, et cetera, gets looked over. Because now you've already figured out the types of politics that matter, so you don't get to talk about what's actually happening. It's a ridiculous mm-hmm. ploy, and that's why. You, and see, that's what I'm saying. That's why you don't have the rising up of a lot of these conversations, because it's not. It's not just the thing where the academy's broke. It's a way in which we study black people that's broke. We keep making sure. I mean, think two months ago it was Nigeria, right? Then it was my brother's keeper. Now it's Garner. Now it's Kimberly Foster, right? We we change our minds like we're you know like we're written movies. It's just mm-hmm, whatever holds mm-hmm. us at our, t- at our time. I mean, we're, we're, a blo- we're a blockbuster, you know, a group. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. And we don't It goes back to a conversation I've had with you, uh, Dr. Curry, and I, um, when you've been with us and I've had with Alpha probably on a weekly basis for the last four years. Mm-hmm. Here's how this it, it, it boils down, I think. It boils down to... I'll give you an example, and we're going to be talking about this in the second hour. Marissa Alexander. I spent I spent almost two months before Melissa Alexander was sentenced trying to get all the black talking heads, all the black bloggers, all the black feminists, all the black anybody who would listen to start talking about this case. I, I went through the same thing with Kimba Smith and the same thing with the Scott sisters, but until MSNBC That's right. started talking about Marissa Alexander after she had been in jail for almost two years, did the black Twitterville or Twittersphere or... Twitterverse. Dennis? Dr. Curry? Yes, still here. Dennis? I think Dennis got disconnected. Um, and she will be calling back in pretty soon. But Dennis is absolutely right. This is, we have been controlled by the media. Perception is one of the biggest, I would say, one of the biggest tools. The, you know, the, the fourth branch of government is the media. Fairness of the media is something is 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 a fairy tale. 
We're not going to get it. We don't get Am to... I on? Yes. You're back. You're back. Okay. Well, we don't get to air our grievances. There is, you know, fairness is just, a, you know, a pipe dream. They, yeah. they get to control the narrative, and they get to bring on who they want, and they pick and choose the people who have or say what they want them to say. If they can mock black person's face out and say, well, this this person didn't agree with you, and that's who they, yeah, but you, yeah. that's who they hold up. No, I agree with yeah. you wholeheartedly. And I think the point that Janice makes about uh, not only her work on Melissa Alexander, but even things that we saw in Black Agenda Report and at that time, you know, Reading News Report about Marissa Alexander goes unnoticed. So now, now it becomes a talking point because, as you say, MSNBC picks it up. Uh, you got Melissa Harris Perry that did a special on it. Now it becomes see, that's what I mean. We we take these pseudo intellectual conversations and give them to black masses, and then we see all this all the stuff around it proliferate, and you see it time after time. One person disagrees with my brother's keeper, now it's a talking point. You know, Marissa Alexander gets locked up, nobody says anything, then it's a talking point. But we, they let, when they, in 2012, when they released that report about all the extra legal uh, killings of black people, nobody picked it up. Nobody when talked you get, about it. Nobody talked about it. But it was on mm-hmm. black talk radio, it was on black news outlets, it was on Atlanta Black Star. All these other black venues were talking about it. And nobody pays those black venues attention, but when some black intellectual figurehead gives it to the black masses, that's what they use. That's what they use for their ammunition, right? Mm-hmm. It's a dishonest mm-hmm. conversation. And that's, and that's and, why and, now and we're having this conversation. We, we certainly can't talk about uh, a protest against uh, the, uh, the state of Israel and their genocide against the Palestinian people. Uh, we can't talk about Eric Garner or Marissa Alexander without, and I have to give it to Corrine Brown uh, of Florida. I really have to give her credit. She was the only elect, black elected official, including the whole body of the infested black caucus, uh, Congressional Black Caucus, that um, they're not saying anything about any of these things. Right. Because they got caught on, on net neutrality. So they're not saying anything. The, the, the point is that we have all got to give, out, give up our love of, of our dreams of getting rich quick. I got to take a break. Alpha, thank you for your call. You stay with us. We'll be right back. Well, I just do want to say this to you, um, and I meant to say this um, earlier. I was not here last week because um, I lost a very dear friend uh, who uh, was my first husband and the father of my daughter, a very gentle, gentle giant uh, in our family. We have remained friends for many, many years and uh, I am so thankful for who he was, both as a husband and a friend. Uh, he has been fighting severe and insidious health problems for over 25 years. And uh, he made his transition and is now an ancestor. And I am thankful for the man who he was to my daughter and my grandchildren uh, and the man who 
he was to me as a husband, as a friend, as a college sweetheart, and uh, he will be sorely missed in our family. And so tonight, um, you know how when you're young you don't have any money, Tommy, when you first get Mm -hmm. married? You had no money. All we had was Al Green. <laughs> so, <laughs> we had Al Green. Uh, and so I'm featuring the music of Al Green tonight in honor of my dear, dear friend, uh, Louis Graham. I'm sorry for your loss. <laughs> listening to Our Common Ground. Thank you for tuning in. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, more talk that matters, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our call-in number is 347-838-9852 if you'd like to join us in this discussion. Real talk and truth that matters. This is Our Common Ground. In our second hour, we're going to be talking about Marissa Alexander and the rejection of her hearing for a defense on Stand Your Ground. And we're going to be also talking about the poor door. This is our common ground. This is TruthWorks Network, and this is Truth for Our Youth, Teen Self-Empowerment. six-week workshop, a collaborative project between TruthWorks Network and author, educator, and educational coach, Ajay Taimba, the author of Truth for Our Youth. This broadcast workshop is designed for parents, advocates, and teens. Moderated by Ajay Taimba, the author of Truth for Our Youth. This is Listen, Learn, and Talk Radio at TruthWorks Network. Open up your books, and we do hope you have your book. Draw up your pencils and pens. It's time to get to work. Knowledge is power, and it can lead us to empower teen self-empowerment. Thank you for being with us tonight. And now here's the workshop. Right, that's what you want to do. You're listening to Truth Works Network, the Alpha Show.
you want your politics with hot grits, it's the Alpha Show, Friday night at Truth Works Network, 10 p.m., Alpha brings it strong. India Declare, real, raw, and right now. It's the I Declare Show with India Declare, 11 a.m., Friday and Saturday. End your week and start your weekend with Real, Raw, and Right Now. 11 a.m. Blog Talk Radio. I declare it. India Declare will be returning on August 1st here at Blog Talk Radio. into our common ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Thank you for being with us tonight. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now, back to Janice. I could sing that song forever. I don't know if all of you know anything about Lou Rawls, but in our poor days, and that was also a dedication to my ex-husband, who we lost of from our family to become an ancestor, and we funeralized him last uh, Friday with um, all of his Boston University basketball teammates and fraternity brothers from Alpha Phi Alpha, people from the community and from his church who came to celebrate the contributions that he made in his life. Now, Tommy, see, you might not know anything about that because you're not of my generation, but young couple, in the days when we got married and didn't have no money and um, didn't make much money, (laughs) we think about that, too. Uh, We used to um, have house parties. All the couples who didn't have any money like us, we we just put on some music. Um, We didn't do Boone's Farm. Uh, (laughs) But um, everybody would come over on a Saturday night, bring the babies. All the babies would be in one bed and uh, sleeping, and we'd be in the kitchen just tearing up the floor with some Lou Rawls and and some of the oldies but goodies. And um, that was one of our songs. This song will last forever, and I always love Lou Rawls. Thank you for being with us here tonight with Dr. Tommy J. Curry here at Our Common Ground. Uh, In this hour, we're going to be talking about uh, the recent... Rejection by a Florida Circuit judge who rejected the filing and request of the court uh, 
to hear Marissa Alexander's defense of the Stand Your Ground Law in Florida as she goes to, to a new trial in December. And we're going to be talking about it. And we're also going to be talking about the poor door. I don't know if you know about the poor door, but the poor door is a 30-story building in New York City uh, that uh, has mixed housing. Um, the front row seats of the rich people, the rich people's part, faces the uh, Hudson River with a beautiful view. And the poor people's part is in the back of the building, and they have to use a separate exit and entrance because their rent is subsidized by the federal government, and we're going to be talking about that. But before we do, we want you to know that our number is 347-838-9852. That's where you can listen. That's where you can learn. That's where you can call in with your comments, and we're going to go to our phones. 610, you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call. 610? And you know I respect you as well, uh, Brother Brock. Brother Brock from uh, Philadelphia, PA. Philadelphia, PA. Philadelphia, PA here. Hello, Hotel. How's it going? Sounds good. Glad to hear your I'm voice. And, uh, yes, uh, Dr. Kerry as well. Pleasure. Yes, Thanks for coming on board. And I'd like to uh, continue the topic you got at hand, if you don't mind. And uh, I guess before I forget, since you just mentioned the one about the, 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 the New York uh, high-rise uh, expensive housing, I, you know, I'm not going to spend much time on that for my comment, but I, for whatever reason, I don't see that as discriminating or racist or uh, I, 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 it, it, it probably falls under the lines of, of, of just a, a yuppie-type attitude, which is not breaking law. So, Well, yeah, it does break the law, and we're going to be talking about that. It, it discriminates uh, well, on the basis of source of income, which is against the okay. law in the state of New York, and in some cases a, um, a violation of the Fair Housing Act. Then if that's the case, then it needs to be changed. Uh, uh, other than that, I think if you looked around uh, in, in, in gated communities or, or anything else, they have the same well, I guess they don't have the same scenario because they don't no, have they mixed don't. uh they don't have mixed income. So I guess this falls yeah, this, yeah, this falls under its own thing. So I'll leave that one alone. Yeah. And since the law says that, I'll go with the law. Other than that, I'll go to the um since you ju- just changing up to the Melissa Alexander, but I would use that use use my same comment with Melissa Alexander case as well with Doctor Kerry was talking about earlier, with all the other numerous uh uh criminal offenses that we see the law enforcement uh, going through. Uh, basically, I'm trying to remember what the actual uh, uh, phrase is when I can give a, I guess I can give an example since I can't think of the phrase, and maybe the, the chat room can figure it out or you and the host can uh, the guess. The law enforcement and the judges and, 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 and uh, to, to, to keep uh, crime at bay, they will always side with a police force 
to to implement as much force as needed so that criminals can never have the upper hand. And I'm not in favor of that at all. I just feel as though that is the underlying reason why, and and, and, and although it's supposed to be with criminals only, it, 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 it goes way beyond criminals. So, and, you know, as much as we protest, we always, I hate to use the word always, but we see the negative effects in court. Every other time, every time, uh, don't believe your lying eyes, uh, don't believe the videos, uh, the, the, the person on the ground who was being kicked by the, every police officer there is, handcuffed, still somehow or another threatening the police, so the police had to do what they did and use uh, brute force. So, uh, you know, I just think that all these different lawyers need to go about proving to the courts that no matter how you slice it, they, the, the, the courts, the, the witnesses, not the witnesses, but the judges are going to side with the police. And yeah, the last yeah. point on that, last point on that, uh, I can't stand the fact that although we may, and I say we, meaning the, um, the families of, of all these atrocities, they may win later in civil court, may, they may. However, it does no good to the police force because our tax dollars, wherever you're living, New York City, uh, Philadelphia, uh, L.A., tax dollars pay for that lawsuit. So the police never straighten up. They don't feel any pain. And let's get, let's get a comment from – let's, let's yep, get some response from uh, Dr. Curry. And for those of you who would like to respond to Brother Brock, our number is 347-838-9852. Brother Brock, sit for a minute. Let's get a response yeah. from um, Dr. Curry. Yeah, I think I think you're correct that when we look at police and the judicial system, those two things work hand in hand. The problem is that most of us think somehow that there's going to be an appeal for justice within the system. And I keep trying to what, – what I try to emphasize to people is that these things are after the fact, right? Trayvon Martin's gone. Jordan Davis has gone. The brother Eric Garner's gone, right? Renisha McBride is gone. Oscar, Oscar exactly. Grant. Grant, yeah. Right. Oscar Grant is gone. Mm-hmm. So what we, what we end up – I mean – Think, think about our position. Our position is we know what a situation is. We know that there's an anti-blackness in the world that means that black people are going to be targeted and killed. And we don't, we don't attack that. We don't attack that we know these conditions that grow up this type of violence exist. We wait till that violence happens, and then we want to debate the meaning of that violence. Right? I mean, I mean, I mean think, about, think about the position that black people are in. We just saw... Oscar Grant, we just saw Trayvon Martin, right? We just saw Jordan Davis. Those cases are over. We're deliberating about McBride now, right? Those cases are over. So are we really that surprised that an Eric Garner situation happens? But then what we do when it does happen is now we want to debate the meaning of it. So the brother's dead. Mm-hmm. He can't speak for himself. We can't bring him back. No, no amount of talking or deliberation is going to do that for him or his family. But we sit up, and now we want to talk about, well, what does it mean? Who do we appeal to? What do we do? And it's the same conversation we have over and over again every time a black person dies. Because what we do is we spin our wheels, and we know that we don't have the powers of the oppressed people to change it. So what we do is we say, well, let's do the next best thing. Let's get attention for it. And we start breaking ourselves up into these groups. Here's intellectuals, here's the social bloggers, et cetera, and they make commentaries, and they get rewarded for whatever they say. 
So then when we say, oh, well, look, you can't appeal to any justice, people say, we know that. We just hope to run as far away from that issue as possible. So we, we, we make sure we get our degrees, we separate ourselves based on class, and we're like, well, that's a shame that happens. And then we play like we're the interpreters of that situation in those people's lives. That's inadequate. Like, we already know. I mean, Derek Bell told us that we'll never get justice in the American legal system because the law is fundamentally premised on maintaining white supremacy. Hell, and he was a professor at Harvard that. Law School. <laughs> exactly. And then he quit there and went to NYU, right, because he was like, these people yeah. are racist. Like, like yeah. we, we know these things exist. We've been having the same conversations for 30 or 40 years. The problem is we don't hold anybody accountable. We, we keep right. perpetuating people. We keep supporting people. We keep reading their blogs. We keep supporting them. I don't see how, how we're just letting Melissa Harris Perry get away with this type of stuff. But we don't say anything because we're just so happy that we have a black feminist black woman up there from an Ivy League institution that's going to tell black people something. We're so happy with representation. We don't care about all the people that are dying just so people can be seen. And, that's and you can problem. add that to, to the way in which we honor people who are the first. This first thing is one of my pet peeves. Mm-hmm. The first to be elected to this, the first to do this, and the first to do that. And it has no meaning in the ongoing process of black people surviving. Exactly. As I said, we're not worried about the people. We're worried yeah. about whether or not our person, our subject, our icon wins. And that's what it's come to. I mean, the, the problem of white supremacy and oppression is that it's created, this is what Fanon said, it's created a national bourgeoisie. And that national bourgeoisie are the economic elite, or however you want to call them now, these black intellectual classes, black middle class. These are the people that are fighting for attention. And the academy is professors, and society is going to be politicians. These politicians who don't want to be known as radical, so they come out as moderate Democrats, and they just co-sign on anything that the Democratic Party says. This is why you have the, the, the whole health – I mean, think about it. Think about the wholesale support that black people are giving MSNBC now because Melissa Harris-Perry is on it. Think about that. Think about the fact that we don't have any critical interventions because we know we like MSNBC because they put a black woman on television. That's, that's as far as we get. I would, I would take that one step further because we, we just don't have options. And when you don't have options, you, 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 you get, you're glad to have the one that you have. We have options on the Internet, yes, but we don't have options mm-hmm. on mainstream media. Let me take well, that. what is the difference between I can watch Melissa, uh, MSNBC, I can listen to MSNBC yeah. on, in my car, I can, I, can, I can watch MSNBC on my computer, on my yeah. phone, on my iPad, and on my TV. People can listen to Our Common Ground if you have a smart TV or mm-hmm. have Roku or Amazon TV or whatever that other thing is, Google TV. You can listen to Our Common Ground on your TV if that's all you want to do is have it on your TV. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing that we have with, with, with um, Sirius, right? I mean, this is the same thing that happened to Reading News. Right. Right. You, you, had, you, had a, you had a profile of people who were expressing views that were not liberal, that were um, almost left-leaning, and, you know, it got changed now to, like, Urban View or something, right? But, it, but what you see is this, this programmatic dismantling of any views. And I, these don't even have to be mm-hmm. radical views. But any views that pay attention to systemic inequality get shut down immediately. And this is one of the but things you see- that you notice Melissa Paris Harris-Perry has avoided. She does not have a conversation about systemic issues. She is a, an issue-based talking point type of host. She does not give us, despite having a degree in political science, an actual science of political economics in this country. 
And that's not a personal attack on her, but that's a very real issue about how we understand what's being mm-hmm. offered to black people as the honing points of where our political acuity and perception mm-hmm. needs to be. Right? And, 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 this and, is, and, and the it's the same thing. And, you know, don't well, – I'm not just uh, – going to hone in on what MSNBC is, you people who support Tom Joyner, Mm -hmm. same thing. You people who support, no, I'm not going to go there, but you have to begin to, (laughs) you have to begin to understand that it is all very calculated in terms, you know, you know, Tommy. One of the things, and Brother Brock, I just want to tell you this. I talked to my friend Norm Goldman, and I love him to death because he's mm-hmm. doing the right thing on radio. Okay. But yes, when he, he said to when he said to the people, the white people that listen to him, and and then there are many there are many blacks who listen to him too. I I, I listen to him every day. Uh, because I like what he has to say. I like the way he does analysis. And I think he's on point on 90% of the things that he's talking about. He's talking about them in my interest, and that's why I like Norman Goldman. Well, mm-hmm. he decided because he was getting thrown off because he was getting too far to the left yeah. to go on the Internet. He charges his listeners Five, if you $5. want to listen to one hour, you get it free. If you want to listen to it for three hours, you pay $5, and it's going up to $10. He has more than 50,000 Facebook followers. His radio show has more than, um, at this point, it's up to 7 thousand over seven thousand people who are paying five dollars a month to listen to him for three hours if i did that and decided and decided that was going to be my only income we would come to your house to eat you see what i'm saying uh, okay okay um you think I could get 7,000 people to pay $5 a month to listen to Our Common Ground? I told Alpha last night his check was in the mail. I hope he's not holding his breath. Gotcha, gotcha. But we've got uh, let me many, my last, many... Let me ask my last point. My, uh, my last sure. question, I'll hang up and listen. I'll, I'll put me on mute and I can listen to the answer on mute. Okay, uh, I will. When, when, when Dr. Curry mentioned that uh, we don't hold people accountable, Yes, sir. Uh, and that, you know, for the most part, we've seen how many people get fired, laid off, uh, thrown out for standing up, i.e., right. a senior hall, i.e., you know, the list goes on and on and on. So, uh, and usually when you say the first, meaning President Barack Obama, you, we know that he can't do what the third or fourth person might be able to do. So, we, uh, maybe we don't hold them accountable just because we know the ramifications. Now, is that fair? I'll ask you, and then I'll mute my mic, and I can listen to the answer. Well, well sir. Uh, thank you, Brother know, Brock, for your call. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I think I think it's a half-and-half half proposition because we seem to be more than willing to hold them accountable when it comes to, like, my brother's keeper. When we when we don't get and, – and, and that's what I mean. Like, we haven't held him accountable for anything up to this initiative. 
So we so when he's been making these universal claims about helping the economy generally, and then that'll trickle down to black people. Nobody said anything. You didn't see all these things blasting Obama. You saw the routine article that says he doesn't get it, but nothing that came out this big. Even when he gave that ridiculous speech at Morehouse about getting more black men into the homes uh, to take care of their families, and you know telling white women and, uh, and college-educated women they need to go open businesses. Nobody says anything. He comes out with a program for young black and brown men. Suddenly everybody's trying to hold him accountable now. So now he's got father issues, he's got daddy issues, now he's, you know, sexist, now he's patriarchal, now he's X, Y, and Z. This is selective, right? And this is what I mean when I say that people give people talking points. Like, the real issue here is that we have people that are opinion makers, policy makers, and intellectuals. And we support them regardless just because we're happy to see a black face on television. Despite the fact that none of these people who are talking represent any of our actual concrete interests. And this isn't being like, you know, this isn't me speaking from a position where we just need to condemn the academy. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that we have to stop mixing morality with public opinion. In other words, just because someone doesn't give us or speak truth to what we already believe does not mean that account should be disregarded. So if somebody, if you disagree with someone and you have someone that's trying to bring a new perspective, that perspective needs to be listened to because it increases the, the form that black public opinion and black political theory has to debate. If we only listen to what the people that we like say, then we're in the same position. This is why we're debating about whether or not we should support My Brother's Keeper or March for Eric Garner. It's a silly comparison. He's dead. That's another black person dead. Right? Just like when I spoke about that baby Ayanna Stanley. Nobody covered it. When we talk about Eric Glover and Terrence Rankin, those two boys that were slaughtered and cut up and the white people had sex on their bodies up in Joliet, Illinois, not one person covers it. You have black mm-hmm. people who are very aware of what's going on to black men, women, and children. But because it doesn't fit with the preconceived notions of what black people's politics are in the majority, they get ignored. And then when something mm-hmm. pops up like Eric Garner, it becomes a talking point. But who does that help? The only people that can help are white people in positions of power. That doesn't help black women. If black women don't vote for Air, don't march for Eric Garner or not, it may piss off a whole lot of black men, but it does nothing to actually improve their material conditions. These bloggers do nothing to improve the material conditions of black men or women who they claim that they're fundamentally concerned about. That's why mm-hmm. they weren't talking about Marissa Alexander, because it, it wasn't mm-hmm. a talking point. They couldn't get popular mm-hmm. doing it. So now we That's sit right. back and we have these debates. We have these, these wholehearted debates like we're doing something when it's all make-believe. It has nothing to do. They're, black people don't have water in the United States. Black men are being killed. Black boys are getting raped and nobody talks about it because, again, they're the wrong type of bodies. Then when we do talk about black women that get raped, we're not marrying this to white supremacy. We're not marrying this to poverty. We're not marrying this to the, the lack of social services or mental treatments in our communities. We say let's blame black men who are already criminalized. And then when we talk about black women, we're saying, hey, but then it's black women's fault because they birthed those criminals and animals into the world because they're illegitimate mothers. And we justify their sterilization, their incarceration, and the lack of treating them. This is a cycle. It is using black men and their death and their danger to black black women for creating them and putting them into the world. And we're too blind to see that because we want to argue about identity politics. That's the issue. That's what I mean when we say we don't hold people accountable. Because we see Mm -hmm. them doing this and speaking and interpreting black life in this way, but we don't have the courage to stand up and say we will not support that. I mean, nobody said up as like she has an opinion to she has a right to her opinion. Kimberly Foster has a right to her opinion, but damn it, shouldn't someone say a policymaker, somebody who's actually working on this, say this is not acceptable, right? Mm-hmm. When Valerie Jarrett mm-hmm. stood up to all the women about my brother's keeper, they labeled her a sellout on Twitter. You have untenured academic professors. Some of them are tenured, but most, for a large part, untenured academic professors telling somebody with a degree, I believe her JD is from Stanford, 
working in the president's office that she doesn't care about black women because she doesn't agree with their opinions. What is the, what is the world coming to? And this is what I mean when I say we let social media and blogs overwrite policy and material conditions of black people. And we can certainly degree, we, uh, disagree. We should criticize. We should write about our criticisms and our disagreements. But that doesn't mean that we should demonize people just because they don't match with some elite bourgeois middle class mo- uh, movement that's happening in the academy that's trying to get control, sole control and ownership over interpreting black people. That's unacceptable. And we don't hold those people. We don't hold that practice accountable for whether or not it's actually betraying black life. Mm-hmm. And you know, and one of the things that you said at the beginning of the broadcast is that we hold blogs over books. Exactly. We've been writing about this stuff forever. That's got to stop. How how are we interacting with policymakers? I mean, think about this. If there, because I don't, you know, I've I've supported the symbolism of my brother's keeper, but I've I've completely disagreed with what it's trying to target, right? I don't think that mentorship Mm -hmm. is the the real issue of black and brown men. I think incarceration, I think, you know, broken families, I think poverty, I think, you know, sexual and domestic abuse of these young men and juvenile, you know, I think those are the key issues. None of the policy addresses that, right? So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so do I criticize it? Yes, I've been an adamant critic of it. But on the other hand, I'm not going to say that I don't believe there should be gender-specific policies aimed at black men the same way I support gender-specific policies aimed at black women or girls. Right, but because this doesn't fit within the parameter, right? It's actually based on research, and doesn't fit in the parameter of how we think of intersectionality or black feminism or whatever, or gender, whatever we want to call it. That becomes an unpopular opinion, despite the fact that it's actually in research. Doesn't mean it's absolutely true, but it means it's a perspective mm-hmm. that has some reasons to believe it. Right? But so we you know, don't, that's not how we also, sophist- we're not sophisticated enough to, to to make those nuances. It 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 also comes down to the general population within the black community where Absolutely. we are lazy thinkers. Absolutely. Absolutely. Lazy that we want somebody to chew it up and spit it out for us and if it kind of fits that's what we, we take it. Yeah. Right. And I think 312, we're coming at you uh, here at Our Common Ground with Dr. Tommy J. Curry, who just laid it out. Thank you for your call. I respect you. Hey, Janice. Not only are we uh, lazy thinkers at times, you know, and, and we want people to uh, tell us what to do, we get way too emotional um, when emotion doesn't need to be involved. But, um, hey, this is uh, House News Glover, um, Ramadan, Mubarak. House, good to hear from you. Um, I'm glad to hear you again. It's been a while since I heard you on a regular basis. And the doctor that's there, I remember talking to him last time. He yes, sir. Yes, sir. And um, he was a great guest. Um, I'm not trying to produce your show or give any extra work to the doctor, but I love to hear him as a guest host every time you get on the air. The brother is 100% right with every syllable that he utters. I agree with him, <clears throat> and I, I've heard him express um, things that I thought that I, I hadn't even uh, sounded upon yet. Um, as far as the brother in New York that was killed, the guy that put that chokehold on him, I heard that he was uh, already already under investigation. He did that before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he has a history of that exact chokehold, and the police department has not reprimanded him or taken him off the force. Um, so that's another uh, uh, that's another way that they failed that brother in the entire New York uh, mm-hmm. city, mm-hmm. uh, the people that live there. Um, I had not heard of the um, 
uh, um, assistant in Florida. Uh, you mentioned something about uh, Marissa. Oh, Marissa Alexander. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, there were, mm-hmm. I hadn't heard that from the judge, uh, so I'm kind of surprised. Yeah. About well, we're gonna pay. We're gonna play the report. But one of the things that has occurred to me, um, a house music lover and uh, Dr. Curry, is that when I when I witnessed the uh, video of the California Highway Patrolman beating the black woman on the highway, it occurs to me over and over two things that we have got to challenge our law enforcement community about, and that is screening for drug use and screening for mental health problems. Mm -hmm. Because it is clear to me that the highway patrolman who beat that sister down on the side of the highway was so out of control that he could not stop himself. The hatred and vitriol and violent rage came through so clear. Absolutely. You know, I also heard a report about uh, that sister's story, how California had been recruiting um, white men from the South who had, you know, like KKK uh, affiliations. So that kind of surprised me also. Yeah. Um, yeah. You mentioned earlier about the uh, Israel-Gaza conflict. <clears throat> I'm sitting in the parking lot now of a mosque I'm about to go into for what's what they call Tarawi prayer. Actually, I'm late because I was listening to the show and I wanted to get in. But um, uh, so you know my, my, where my heart is but I'm still going to try and be uh, objective. Um, there was a rally today, uh, and there's been rallies going on, I think every day at Daily Center, downtown Chicago, um, in support for uh, Palestinians for Gaza. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I was supposed to go. I didn't make it. Hopefully I'll get there in the next day or two. Um, but on the news, they actually showed uh, a woman who was a Jewish, Israeli citizen, um, who's speaking out against, the uh, the incursion um, yes. on the basis of how Israel absolutely mm-hmm. does not. If you're a, a Jew, if you're an Israeli, you should be against this um, because how it's going down and how actually she alluded to everything that you guys said earlier. How it's in the front and it's a land grab and it is the cause and the means of genocide. And the unfortunate mm-hmm. thing is um, there are so many liberal Israelis and Jews, but all you hear about is Netanyahu and that Yakul party, and on the other side, Hamas is getting used um, because mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. are being able to be uh, help everybody else be projected as these extremists, and the little things that they do are blown up, and literally they let Netanyahu um, blow them up because of mm-hmm. it. Um, and in that way they're being used, but at the same time, you're right, um, Hamas didn't throw the first uh, rocket, as it was. They're just simply mm-hmm. being, um, doing what they're doing in response to what Israel's been doing to them. So mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. my thing. Well, it, it it is it is very clear that there is an uprising in Israel. I have um, two friends, very close friends, who are residents. And, and live and work, American friends who live and work in uh, Israel, 
and they are watching this closely, and they have a uh, private IM uh, feed going on, and there are just many, many anti-Israeli protest, uh, uh, protesters who are coming out of the state of Israel, as well as Paris and England and New York. Um, I looked at a scene of protesters, um, and I think it, I, I, I've forgotten where it was, but it was just hundreds of people. So uh, this president is going to have to face up to the American sentiment and the protesters across the country about what is happening. Hey, house music lover, it was good to hear from you. Get in there and say prayers for peace for all of us tonight. Absolutely. Um, Doctor, talk to you soon. Hopefully, if not, I will be following you, and um, always great to hear about you, Janice, and sorry for your loss. Thank you, sir. Thank you, uh, house music lover. Uh, yeah, we're going to um, try to uh, keep this uh, thing going, Tommy. But here's a report at the bottom of the second hour here at Our Common Ground on Marissa Alexander, for those of you who have not heard. So that ill-fated stand-your-ground law just ripped another hole in the fabric of America's so-called justice system. This week, a circuit court judge in Florida ruled that Marissa Alexander, the woman who fired warning shots in the air to keep her abusive husband at bay, will not get another hearing. Alexander now awaits a second trial in December where the mother of two faces an inhumane amount of jail time. Count them, 60 years, all for the crime of trying to stay alive. This despite the fact that no one was killed or even injured as a result of her actions. Alexander was previously unsuccessful in invoking the infamous Stand Your Ground statute in her defense when she was charged with aggravated assault. However, last month, Florida Governor Rick Scott added a so-called warning shot revision to the Stand Your Ground statute, meaning Alexander's defense could argue that revision applies to her retroactively if they're successful in winning her a second hearing. Because there's no doubt Alexander was standing her ground. During the previous trial, police records demonstrated that Alexander's husband had a long history of abusing her. In fact, he himself testified that he had not only beaten her, but all of his girlfriends. Yet despite all of this, it took a jury only 12 minutes to find Alexander guilty, sentencing her to 20 years behind bars. Now, keep in mind, the Stand Your Ground statute is the same law that jurors took into account when they let George Zimmerman, the man accused of murdering unarmed teen Trayvon Martin, walk free. So, if anything, this gross miscarriage of justice of not letting Alexander be retried when she was actually standing her ground proves very clearly who this law is actually meant to protect. Now, let's break the set. And we thank the people at Real News Service for that report. Uh, Tommy, you see, one of the things that I think we have to come, and I've been saying it for years and years and years, is that this system is not designed, nor w will it ever be directed to protect people who they don't even want to be here. I mean, Absolutely. Um, I... I I don't know how many of you heard the author of a new book on uh, immigration talk about why the history of why America 
has never wanted African Americans to be here. Liberia, we're celebrating the independence of Liberia today, uh, and that was all about the American government finding a place for for us to go. If we if if they couldn't keep us in slavery, so uh, here is this stand your ground law, which here's no one was hurt, no no and 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 here goes no one was hurt, no one was killed, and this woman is facing sixty years in prison without the stand your ground defense. Mm-hmm. 60 years. And here goes your point earlier in the program where you talked about, where we were talking about blogs over books. Mm-hmm. Um, I read a blog, website, blog, whatever it was, where the name of the site was I Love Black People. Okay, mm-hmm. and they had the ex-husband of Marissa Alexander, who was the subject of this event, talking about. I mean, I mean, he was just telling his telling his side of the story in a fantasy about how she was beat on him, and it didn't happen the way she said it happened that there's documentation, which there's not, but it doesn't talk about how one of the reasons that Marissa Alexander is getting a new trial is how he influenced witnesses, his children, to lie on the stand. So here we are relying once again on a justice system that has no justice for us. Yeah. This is... And we put ourselves in this situation time and time again. I think Alexander's situation is a prime example of how black people in this country don't have a right to self-defense. And right. we have focused and we have continued to focus on the gender aspect of her situation uh, without doing a comparative analysis of how this fits with so many other cases uh, of black men as well. This is a problem of blackness, people. Your identity politics don't don't win that, Right. It's a problem of blackness. This is the justice system is using something it has to exploit and incarcerate this woman, right? And and notice what we're doing here is that we see in this in all the accounts that I've seen of this, we blame the justice system, but then we we romanticize her her struggle because it's not just her struggle against the state, but also this violent blackmail, right? And instead of us right. understanding that these are the conditions that many of our men and women find themselves in. And this is what I mean mm-hmm. when I say that we're, like, domestic violence happens because we have people that are put in impoverished situations. We have people with no conflict resolution skills. We have people that believe that violence is the only way. It's not, and, and we create a special species. So a man beats a woman, domestic violence. A man shoots another man, well, that's something completely different. We have to address right. the issues in our society and why this becomes necessary because society has neglected these issues in our communities, that she would have to use a gun to get this person off her. Where are the police in this situation? Where are the people who's there mm-hmm. to protect her in this situation, right? Mm-hmm. And then when she gets, right. then she gets persecuted by the very system that failed to deal with her in the first place. And now they're upholding this mystical standard, which is the same logic they used when a boy, when a child was killed by George Zimmerman. 
if it chose to protect the the white slash whatever he calls himself Latino version of his identity instead of an innocent child. Right? We see ourselves. Mm-hmm. See, this is what gets me, Jess. We see ourselves losing at every turn. Be it a man, be it a woman, or be it a child. Like Trayvon Martin right. lost, he's a child. And instead mm-hmm. of us saying mm-hmm. this is a problem with how they conduct and interact with blackness, we want to start. We want to start slicing it up. And see, that's what I appreciated right. about when you first start covering this issue, is you said this is a problem with the law and how it interacts with black people, and we need to pay attention to this. Nobody else did that, and that's what I'm saying. When the talking point was given, it was like, oh, this black woman, X, Y, and Z, and that's why now this is pretty much controlled by the dominant black feminist voice of the academy. Rather than being taken up by lawyers, by policymakers, by public analysts, saying what is wrong with how this law is used against black people, and why does it put black mm-hmm. women in this kind of situation and particular vulnerabilities? Because that means that if mm-hmm. black women try to assert themselves through self-defense, that there's a racist disposition that won't allow it. But, right, we, but right. we don't have that type of analysis. Well, it, it takes me back to what one of our callers, uh, um, um, house music lover, just said, is that we deal, we, we translate, we transpose our initial reaction to these things. He said emotions, but what mm-hmm. I say is to morale, um, morality. Right. And when you begin to look at laws and public policy in regard to morality, that's a disconnect. Absolutely. For instance, this chokehold will never be a murder charge, even if it ever becomes a murder charge, even if it ever becomes a charge. It will have to be manslaughter because murder is defined in the legal annals as something different than what happened. Uh, He can be charged with a violation of department regulations. He can be charged with manslaughter, but murder is, I mean, we like to use the word murder because we know that somewhere deep in his boots, it was his intent to hurt this man. Exactly. It was his intent to kill that man. Exactly. But you have to understand that murder is a legal term so genocide is a legal term term under the under the laws and regulations set by the UN right not set by the United States government which is why you find reparations groups and 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 groups who are concerned with ethnic uh, and genocidal uh, ethnic cleansing and, and, and genocide go to the UN. They don't go Absolutely. to their national government or our, 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 our judicial process for that. I mean, if if um, ethnic cleansing was against was a law with had protection in the United States, we couldn't go to the Supreme Court because mm-hmm. we'd never win on the technicality of the term. Right. And that's what we have to do. I, I'm gonna. Those, those I, I want to take a, a a short break, uh, Dr. Curry. And then I want to come back very quickly to this poor door uh, issue. I keep calling it a poor door because everybody else calls it a poor door, but really <laughs> yes, what it ma'am. is is a violation of of housing uh, discrimination laws. And uh, for those of you who are listening, don't forget to follow Dr. Curry 
at his blog, The National, The Nationist. The Nationist, yes, ma'am. And, and uh, follow him on Facebook and Twitter, and don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and at our community forum. I'm at Janice OCG on Twitter. We'll be right back. You're tuned to Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you, speaking truth to power and ourselves. 20 years broadcasting black, bold, and brilliant. Damn, Thank you for being with upgrade us. Upgrade that. Hey, Daddy, what that day? And why that under day? And oh, Daddy, oh, hey, Daddy, hey, look it over there. Hey, what they doing there? And where they going there? And Daddy, can I have that big elephant over there? We invite you to join Peter E. Matthews on Soul Emergence, Tuesday nights, 9 p.m., Soul Emergence at TruthWorks Network. Where reconciliation is the tool of revolution. Soul Emergence with Peter E. Matthews, only on TruthWorks Network, the Black Voice Collaborative. And a study I read indicated that probably 95% of the population in this country at one point in, or another in their lives commits a crime. I mean, it may be like, you know, taking a candy bar and not paying for it. And I'm not going to ask everybody to raise their hands who hasn't committed a crime. You know, but think about it. Think about, think about your, your, your lives. And think about who are the people who are then called to answer for that. And the role that the prison system then plays in manufacturing criminals and manufacturing crime. And one of the things I often point out with respect to my own experience was that, you know, I, when I went into... Um, into jail, I was uh, an assistant professor on my first job. I taught for one year, you know, long-time graduate student. Um, and I really hadn't acquired very many skills uh, with respect to, uh, like, um, shoplifting and, you know, boosting. Or to our common ground, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Tommy J. Curry. You know, uh, that was Angela Davis uh, talking about 
who really pays for crime, and you've really gotten to some of that, uh, Dr. Curry, to help yes, guide people's thinking about uh, uh, who who pays for crime, and it always ends up being black people. And and right. and when I say that, I'm not dismissing the kind of insurgency and urgency that has to do with white supremacy and brown people or mm-hmm. Native American people. But it is clear that in 2014, after 29 years, that 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 uh, promo was all wrong. Uh, it was done when I was here 20 years. I've been here now 29 years. And, 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 and this thing is getting worse. Right. It's Absolutely. almost like it's almost like a sore that's getting worse no matter how many band-aids and how much hydrogen peroxide you put on it. And here is an example of the kind of disdain cuz these people aren't talking about poor they are there is a disdain an undercurrent of of disdain for poor people, but the mm-hmm. poor door is about black people. Absolutely, absolutely. Using the phrase I mean, think, a poor door. Yes, you heard it correctly, a poor door. Well, plans for a 33-story building at 40 Riverside Boulevard call for market-rate condos on one side and low-income affordable rental units on the other. The blog, the West Side Rag, even notes that the condos will have Hudson River views while the rentals will be in the back. Earlier this summer, Community Board 7 wrote a letter to the city's Department of Housing, Preservation and Development as well as the Department of City Planning regarding this building. While it is welcoming the affordable housing units, the board is worried the separate entrances will create an environment where the rental tenants will be discriminated against. According to the New York Post, the developer Extel is sinking millions in tax breaks for building the low-income affordable housing. Now, that's the report that talks about what I've, what I've been saying is the poor door. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, here's the deal. This 30-story building, uh, housing unit, the developers get to throw up a tower of luxury condos on apartments and often a tax abatement. But here's where your tax dollars come into this. The financing of this 33-story Upper East Side luxury condo by Extel, which is a big developer in, in, in New York, will have 219 units renting at market rate and 55 units for low-income earners. It is not because this developer wants to create affordable housing for poor people. It is because in order to get your tax dollars, the millions of dollars in tax credits, tax abatements, and the low interest rates in the financing of the construction of this building, taking your tax dollars from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, The deal is you have to have a certain percentage of affordable housing. 
And as you listen and read about this story, I want all of you to understand that while there may be tenants there who pay out of their pockets the $10,000 a month rent, uh, the 5000 or the nine $8,000 a month rent, they are paying rents considered to be fair market rents. The other tenants whose rents will be financed by the U.S. government is the developer will get the full fair market rent for their unit. Now, the tenant, the 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 tenant that's on most of you understand this program is a Section Eight for affordable housing. Under the Section Eight, tenants pay a certain percentage of their income for the rent, and the government pays the the rest. So here we have Dr. Curry. All of these units, the developer is getting his money. Oh yeah, and got got the tax credits and the tax uh, breaks and the tax abatements. So it's not like these people are paying $150 and the other people are paying $10,000 a month. Mm-hmm. Because even if you have one of federally financed tenant in that building who only pays $200 a month, the federal government is paying the rest of whatever the fair market rent is. Exactly. So now they are proposing that they want those persons, and we don't have enough time to finish this subject, and we will come back to this next week. We've only got three minutes. But I mean, we can't have black people running around and saying, "Well, they should have a uh, a separate exit." The law is that you cannot discriminate against people on the basis of source of income. Dr. Mm-hmm. Curry, thank you so much for being with us. I'm sorry we ran out of time here. No problem. Man. But no problem. Um, thank I'm you for always I always enjoy our conversations, and yes, you keep at it. I'll and keep trying. We'll be back right here. We'll start with the poor story next Saturday night at 10 p.m. America owes us. America owes us big. Promises made, promises unkept. Blood, sweat, and tears. Yes, our ancestors wept as their masters crept into their shacks and violated our African mothers for that sugar-sweet but savage and unsaved molasses, making them believers in the one true God by the proselytizing penis process. Yes, America owes us, and we're all too willing to take. We believe that reparations are our key to paradise, but we must think twice. We must realize that the more others give us, the more we forget about ourselves. We have been living for over a century in a spiritual coma, and now we believe some cash will cure us of our historical glaucoma. See, we've forgotten that our emancipation was proclaimed in 1863, and our African identity began to fade by the turn of that century. We must have forgotten that we earned the right to vote because too many of us choose not to go to the polls and pick our politicians with pride. We earned our civil rights in 65, but black-on-black crime is still one of our biggest obstacles to keeping our youth alive. 
affirmative action affirm the assumption that black individual flight will lead the greater black community into economic and political plight. You can count black-owned businesses in the hood on one hand, but rather than take a stand, you'd rather stick out your hand for a paycheck for a past you've forgotten. Don't know our liberators like Garvey and Nat Turner, but it's okay. Just give me that PlayStation and a CD burner for centuries of enslavement and murder. Thank you for joining us here at Our Common Ground with Dr. Tommy J. Curry. I'm Janice Brand. We're here each Saturday night speaking truth to power and ourselves. We hope you'll join us in this family and at this black sanctuary. Good night. Restitution. If we could show the world that we have healed ourselves by putting our color, class, and political issues on the shelf. If we show the world how withholding our money can cripple a world economy. And if we could spit rhymes and show the world that we see our skin as a divine donation from above, then no form of reparations will replace our newly found affluence of self-love. As other nations who have received reparations have shown, real reparations only come to those who first take care of home.